Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Skeptics and Seekers, the third one with the fake limey in the seat. This uh, is a little bit unanticipated, but it's happened. We have got the lovely Daniel. Round of applause to Daniel. Hello. Welcome on board, Daniel. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you now. You and I recorded over on Still Unbelievable, I think it was only a week ago, uh, with Andrew. And we had the lovely chat there. And after that chat, I said, would you like to come over to this other really friendly place uh, where to have another similar conversation? And you are well up for that. So you and David have already had a chat in the background and um, we're going to be inter- and we're going to be joined by Darren. Hello, Darren. Welcome back again. Hello. Glad Hello. to be back. Excellent. And you've had a cu- another couple of extra days to, to rest following your conversation with Teddy. Uh, I've already promised that this is not going to be the same kind of conversation. It probably won't be. And um, this is part of the Build Skeptics and Seekers discussions on morality series. Uh, but because we've done several of those episodes and Daniel, you're new to Skeptics and Seekers. You're, you're new to this ship. And so we're going to let this conversation meander more than we did with the other one. So I'm not going to be quite so strict as I was previously, where I tried to keep it as tight as I could on two subjects of morality. This is going to be allowed to meander a bit more. We'll see how I feel uh, about it when other subjects come up. If, If I want to bring it back, I will. But I'll certainly be a lot more relaxed about where the conversation goes this evening. So I probably want... and. Daniel, you've not listened to any of the other episodes, so there's, it's not, I'm not going to make any effort into trying to recover all, all that ground because you're your own individual. You have your, your own feelings and your own thoughts, so we'll let those come at us fresh. So probably the way I'm just going to open up this uh, episode then is to ask, ask you, Daniel, how do you, do you view morality? And as a pastor, how do you... Do you, um, how do you answer or d- direct your own discussions when people ask about morality and where does God and Christianity fit into morality? That's a broad question. I, I know that. So just sketch out the kind of your thinking on that and we'll see where the questions go from that. And uh, Darren, jump in with any questions you have where, when you feel like it. Sure. Um, yeah, well, morality, obviously, I mean, I look at the Bible and the Bible has some some things to say about morality a little bit, right? And as, as basically as a Christian, I have to try to take that seriously. Uh, but at the same time, I do look at like what, you know, how do, what does science say? What does the research say about how do we actually get morality? And so I am pretty convinced that for most people, and I don't know, I'm, I don't know how other Christians view this. Um, they may not agree with me in this case, but I do think generally it seems to be that human beings get their morality from the, their culture and their experiences around them. And it is pretty subjective, actually. So I and I don't think that the Bible necessarily uh, would argue that it's not subjective, um, that humans wouldn't get their object, uh, morality from subjective, you know, in a subjective way. Um, I do think there is an objective morality. The, 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 the distinction I would try to make is just that human beings have a difficult, very, very difficult time reaching that objective morality if they can, they could even do that, right? So um, because it's so subjective, because it's so culturally shaped, I do think the way that the Bible approaches morality is through culture. 
um, through the, the that's why the, there's such a huge emphasis on the people of God and the nation of Israel in the Bible. It's because morality and the way that God is um, trying to communicate or reveal, quote unquote, his morality to his people is through that culture, is through the stories, it's through the experiences, it's through those events. So ultimately, I, I, I mean, as a Christian, of course, I believe in God. I believe that he has a certain way that he's designed the world, and that's kind of where morality, um, if there's an objective basis for morality, that's where we come from, and he's trying to communicate that to us. But as human beings, I do think the vast majority of what we look at is pretty subjective, and it's difficult to nail down an objective morality um, with just with just our own capabilities, I suppose. So I guess I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I would sum up how I would look at morality. And so if you if you view that. Uh, so you, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that um, you view God's morality objective. Uh, what in your um, estimation makes God's uh, opinions about morality objective? Um, well, if – and these are a lot of assumptions. So obviously I, I'm, I'm – I, fully concede that these are a lot of presuppositions right but if you believe in god so that's like a huge presupposition right (laughs) but if you believe in god if you believe he created the universe which i do then i think that he's probably designed a certain way for human beings to behave to live that kind of thing if you believe that god created human beings right so based on that that's where i would say there's a some type of objective morality um that's grounded in just the belief in God, if you know what I'm saying. So how does his creating the universe make a morality objective? Is that just because he's decided that some things are good and some things are bad, and so whatever he says since he created us is is whatever is just what you're going to call morality? Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's basically what it is, yeah. I mean, okay. you, there's, and, you know, the, there's like the divine command theory or there's like, is it, you know, that kind of stuff. We can get into that. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's basically it's rooted in God somehow, whether he objectively or what, whether he says it and commands it or whether that's just an outflowing of his character or or whether. Yeah. So either way, it's somehow really rooted in God is what I would say. And it is based on presuppositions and beliefs. So I'm not expecting you or other people if you don't believe in God to really necessarily accept that but that's how i i would say okay well um does that make any sense at all no it makes it uh perfect sense i'm just not entirely sure why you're calling it objective i guess uh because objective usually means um outside of anyone's opinion but if it's God's opinion, regardless of whether it's because it's his opinion because of that's his nature or it's his opinion because he's just arbitrary at it. I mean, that still sounds fairly subjective to me. So I guess I'm just sort of curious why you're calling that objective. Okay, well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily define objective, the word objective like that. But if that's how you want to go with it, I'm cool with that, too. And if that's the case, then, yeah, it is subjective. It is based on God's opinion, not just you know, if you just want to call him another, because usually within our like a, a Christian belief or within my belief, we I would consider subjective to be within what humans, you know, a human opinion 
right? So he's outside of human opinion. God would be outside of human opinion. So we would call that objective. But if but if that doesn't, definition doesn't make sense with you, to you, I'm totally cool with going with just <laughs> let's just call it purely subjective. Then we can do that. I don't care. But yeah, yeah, that's actually a fairly common definition among Christians. Um, that uh, objective means whatever God wants. So yeah, you're yeah, you yeah. seem to be right in line there. Yeah. Yeah, so that's basically all I'm saying, yeah. It seems like uh, we've got some quite good uh, um, uh, agreement there. I think, uh, Daniel, you you said something, and it occurred to me while you were speaking, actually, about this whole argument and definition of objective. And I think often what is meant in the whole objective stroke subjective argument, which happens quite a lot, is what is meant by objective is outside of human knowledge, not 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 outside of anyone's knowledge and i think maybe that's a distinction and a clarification that that needs to be made because i think sometimes that point is missed yeah because yeah, when atheists go ahead sorry. oh sorry i was just going to say yeah because when atheists talk about objective moralities they're not talking about uh god's subjective opinion about it they're talking about actual objective you know if all minds disappeared um then there would still be something out there that is that exists that is um, objective like that. So David's uh, a lot of times said that when um, atheists and Christians are talking about morality, they're not talking about the same thing. And I think that's the biggest reason why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree. Um, yeah, because because there's like a different fundamental view of the world that we might have. Um, like, for example, if you're saying all minds, right, if that's how you're defining subjective versus objective, um, you know, we would Christians would look at human minds as completely different than God's mind. And, I, I, and under a Christian worldview, God's mind could not disappear. Right. Obviously. But um, and if it did, nothing would exist. Right. So there would not be any point in talking about objective or there's no reality outside of God's mind from a Christian perspective. But of course, that doesn't make any sense to atheists or an atheist would probably have a different view of what reality is. Right. So I I, I get that. Yeah. OK, so um, one of the things that you said during um your, your, when you were talking about your, the challenges of objective morality, Daniel, one of the things you, you you said was for humans getting what what God wants from morality. Now, correct me if I'm if I'm misphrasing what you said, um, but I think you were suggesting that when humans want to know what God's opinion on morality is, it's sometimes very difficult to for them to achieve that. I, I guess I've got multiple questions around that in terms of. Uh, why is it difficult? Should it not be? Shouldn't it be easier for for Christians to access what God wants, or rather, shouldn't it be easy for God to be able to let us know what it is that He wants us to do in terms of morality? Because partly, my my challenge there is, isn't that partly what the point of some of the Bible is? So I guess I want to know a little bit of where the problems and the difficulties are there, and the the flip side of that is when when a Christian does manage to achieve that, how what how is that knowledge transfer achieved? Does that make sense? Mm, okay, yeah. Um, I personally, I mean, some of these things. That's a good question because some of the ant questions, some of these like 
supposing how difficult is it really to understand or achieve God's morality? If it were really easy, again, these some of these questions will go in circles, I'm guessing. So, But I could say it like this, right? If it were easy, then the distinction between a divine being and a, yeah, a human being, it wouldn't be there. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like the fact that God is like high above us presupposes that it's going to be kind of difficult for finite beings to achieve his morality or and 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 i guess the word difficult is also subjective right so some people might say hey it's not that difficult just obey do it done right but some people and i i would say no it's very difficult for so that could be subjective too um but I think on a logic from a logical perspective, if there does exist a being that's way infinitely higher than human beings, I think naturally, I mean, I and this is just me saying what I, I makes sense to me. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you, right? But for for me, it makes sense that it would be very difficult to um, really achieve that morality, or that it would be a whole nother level, or we would need a lot of help to be able to go there, right? Um, but what was the second part of your question? Um, when it is achieved, how is that transfer of knowledge achieved? Well, I think that that's a complex question, too. And a lot of Christians would disagree with me about this, too. Right. So a lot. I think the way a lot of Christians um, look at it is just you read the Bible and you obey it. Done. Right. So simple. God tells you what to do and you do it. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think the Bible actually characterizes it as that simple. Um, that's the entire story of the Bible. There's a lot of different things that happen. A lot of people disobey and a lot of people fall away and a lot of people rebel against God and all that. And so there is this natural tension in the Bible and it's part of the story. It's like, how is God like God made these people? Like, how come it's so and I think that's part of the question of the Bible. How come it's so hard to follow him? Like we can't, and then ultimately it gets to the 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 answer is just we can't do it. Human beings can't do it, and then it's just, and that's part of the story. It's like, whoa, what are we gonna do now? We can't do it, and God wants us to do it, and if we don't do it, we're gonna get punished. So isn't it up to God to provide a solution for this problem? And then boom, Jesus comes, and God does provide the solution. And I think that's the main story of the Bible. It's like there's this tension. And God provides the solution. So um, ultimately, through what that means is, though, it's not just as simple as just obey. It's not as simple as, oh, just obey the commands. There's going to be there needs to be an act. There's actual like spiritual power behind it. And I know for atheists, maybe that doesn't make sense or whatever. But that's a big theme in the Bible where it's there's spiritual powers that are actually preventing human beings from obeying God, from being able to live the life or the morality that they're supposed to be. And Jesus needs to come and defeat them. And so he defeats sin. He defeats death on the cross. Um, it's not all about the punishment and all that. I don't think um, the cross is not, it's not all about Jesus taking the punishment of human beings. It's not, uh, there's much more to it than that. And so there's forces of evil that got, have to be defeated in order for human beings to really be able to obey God. And then there's there's the God's word, which is not just a a like a command, a proposition that comes down. God's word, his message, the gospel is actually a huge 
story and a whole culture that's built around that. And that's what the the center of the gospel message is. So it requires a whole people of God in order to truly obey God's commands, not just the individual. And that's something I think a lot of Christians miss also. But um, I, but I do think that's part of historic Christianity. So that's how I would characterize it. Again, not all Christians might see it the same way as I do. Well, what if it's uh, too hard to follow God because our morals are actually better than his? Well, again, <laughs> I mean, from an atheist or secular perspective, that, yeah, that, could to- that totally makes sense. But the, the very, from a Christian perspective, the very definition of God precludes that. So it, that wouldn't make logical sense within a, a Christian perspective. But again, like if you don't believe in God, then yeah, that, I mean, I could see that. Well, I mean, because the um, just what you were saying about Jesus having to come on the cross, I mean, that right there is just, I find that insanely repugnant, that entire storyline. So if um, if we have a better morality than your God, and the only reason you think God has a better morality than us is because you happen to have arbitrarily defined him as such, um, and we can provide actual pro-social versus antisocial or well-being or anything that's actually tangible as evidence that that morality is kind of – our morality is better, then shouldn't we go with – what we actually can show to be true rather than just the arbitrary definition of God's better than us. So therefore we have to do whatever he says. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, if, if you could do that, I would totally, I would totally agree with you actually. Yeah. Well, we can do that. How would you do that? Well, I mean, do you value well-being? Is that something that you value? I mean, I think that goes back to the the question, and I don't know where you stand on it, so maybe you can tell me. But do you, from a human perspective, a purely human perspective, is there objective morality? Well, you define objective morality as coming from God, so obviously I wouldn't. Well, from your perspective, I'm just saying. Not, I mean, set aside what I said. You know, I mean, you can say obviously you don't, you wouldn't agree with my. Um, definition of objective versus subjective or whatever but just from a purely like secular humanist perspective is there objective morality well i'm using the normal definition of objective which means um, independent of any minds so if you if you value um if you decide you want to value well-being which i think is what most people are talking about when they're talking about morality um then there are objective ways to achieve that well-being. Well, we can argue over the particulars, but you know. So you do think that there is objective morality? It uh, depends on what you mean by objective, because if all the minds go away, um, then morality is doesn't exist. However, if all minds go away, then it's still a, a fact that drinking battery acid is going to be bad for the human biology, which is going to lower their well-being. So it depends on what you mean by objective. Well, that's what I'm trying to determine is just kind of like how would you define well-being, right? Like, Well, I define it as a combination of fairness, empathy, and if we're going to be um, efficient at figuring out what that is, then we would use like John Rawls' veil of ignorance, which basically means that you can either be the um, 
uh, on each side of the equation, you can be either person and you don't know which person you're going to be. So what is it? it what is the most fair um, and empathetic solution to whatever that problem is, given that you could be in either position? But even that given, I would ask you, why, why would you take that given? Why would you care about that? Like there's a, historically and even today in, in our there's many people who do not care about fairness at all. Right. Oh, and I think I don't care about your God either. I mean, this objection that you're raising doesn't actually isn't actually solved by introducing a God. I'm not saying it's solved by that, but I'm just saying that that there's not it's very difficult, I would say, to agree on well-being or to have some sort of like, hey, my morality is better than yours. There's just I mean, or even to, to argue, hey, the Christian morality is not as good as this other secular morality. It's very hard to argue that because on what basis? Well, I, like, there's no basis for it. You know, we just don't well, agree. The, well, the same thing happens on Christians. So if you're saying that this doesn't work because of those objections, then you're gonna you're also saying that the God story doesn't work because of those objections. So the um, the problem is is that we have to agree on what we're talking about when we talk about morality. If morality is just whatever God says to you and um, and then you're talking to an atheist where his morality is well-being, then you're not really talking about the same thing. So you really have to decide what you're going to be talking about. And I think we can both agree that well-being is something worth achieving. And we can we can maybe be able to argue over how you achieve that well-being, but at least we we would have a definition of morality so that we both are talking about the same thing. But I don't think we can come to that definition that that agreement without even with or so, without so god, you think, with or without so you god, think, with christianity uh, or without christianity i don't think we can come to that agreement i so, so, i agree so you with think you well-being is worth achieving no i do think well-being is worth achieving but that okay I don't then why can't we can, go ahead and why can't we agree that well-being is what we're talking about when we're talking about morality well what i'm saying is that i don't think we can agree on what well-being actually is so you think uh drinking battery acid is good for people I'm not saying that I think that, but I'm saying there's well, if, lots if you of don't, people historic. I think well, there's lots of people historically who done done really stupid things that we would say is stupid, but they thought were awesome. There's a lot of people who sacrificed their kids on a mountain, and they, I mean, what like they, I would agree that that's stupid and that's even worse than drinking battery acid. But they right, thought but we're it not was talking boring, to them. We're talking right? to each other, right? But we're not talking a, to them. We're talking to each I other, agree. right? Yeah, but we, it's because we share same cultural background, I, I would say. And that's why we can agree on more things. But there are a lot of people who do not share our same cultural background. And our shared cultural background all comes from a similar – we're all Westerners, right? Um, and that cultural background has shaped us. That's why I think that a lot of Westerners right. can agree in so, somewhat. So but, which cultural background uh, makes it so that uh, people think it's okay to drink battery acid? I'm not saying that specific example, but there are a lot of cultures where self-harm is a good thing or what we would view as self-harm. They would not view as self-harm. Example, there's historically there's a lot of infanticide, right? And they did that because right, of their morals. Well, yeah, that was Christian tradition at one point, too. But that's not my point. My point is that we can agree on morality. We can agree that um, – Drinking battery acid is not good for you. We can agree that well-being is something we actually want to achieve. 
you know, regardless of whether you think to prove, I think that'd be difficult to prove historically. I think that historically it has been shown that people generally care for the well-being. They may decide on their well-being um, includes um, hurting other other tribes. Um, for example, the Bible stories. That, uh, how many tribes did uh, God command to be executed? You know, uh, but we, as a as our society progresses. We actually do have um, this sense that changes as we get closer to this ideal of well-being that commanding someone to be executed because they're picking up sticks on your favorite day is largely immoral. It doesn't help anyone. It's only, you know, it it doesn't actually um, achieve any sort of um, well-being for anyone. It... it um, and we can agree that that is an immoral act. And to say that we can't come to any conclusions, I mean, that's just, I think that uh, ignores a large part of history, that we are slowly, over centuries, actually are coming to some of these same conclusions. I don't think that that – I mean, I think that would be very difficult to argue objectively, I'm saying. Sure. Well, yes, but we also have different definitions of subjective. Let's say there's some sort of convergence. Even if there was some sort of convergence toward a particular morality, does that can you really say that that morality is better than another morality just because we're converging? Just because the majority agree? I don't even think no, the majority because agree. I think if you agree on what you're calling morality, then you can measure what's better and what's worse. If you if you can agree that well-being is what you're talking about when you're talking about morality, which I think is what the majority of people are actually talking about when they talk about morality, then I think you can measure what's better and what's not. To be honest with you, I think this is I hate to say this, but it's, I think it's very Western what you're arguing. Like if we I, I talk to people, I have a friend who's from China, and he's like. I don't care if the government just murders Uyghurs, right? Or they harvest organs from them. It's for the greater good. I mean, it's so hard to argue morality with people outside your own culture. I agree that we are have a similar culture. We have we similar cultural background. That's why we can agree on a lot of these things. But I in come into contact with people outside of our my culture a lot. And they just – it's really, really difficult. You just get nowhere. They value uh, that, that, completely that, different things. That's because, they're not agree- that's because they're not agreeing on what they're talking about when they're talking about morality. Um, because uh, for the longest time, being moral was just following orders. Um, that, that was the primary definition of moral around the world up until about World War I. Which is why you have this, you know, doing what God says is moral type mentalities, because the book was written when at this time, uh, when authority was considered that was moral. But ever since we had that World War One, where uh, I was just following orders, is no longer. We saw the result of that, and as a, the entire world was sort of shocked at what occurs when that happens, we were able to actually realize that that mentality was not the best way to moving forward and so how are we able to realize that because of world war one because of the results that happened because of it the physical 
actions, the physical um, consequences, everything that happened because of World War One, the, the entire world woke up and said, okay, obeying orders is not how we um, – is not a good excuse. And um, – and it's even enshrined in military the military oath for America. If uh, your uh, oath in the military uh, in America is not to follow authority, it is to uphold the Constitution and to question authority if it seems like the authority is telling you to do something BSC. So the so yes, we can if we all agree that. Morality is the well-being of humankind, which I, I think is what most people are talking about. Then we can agree on what's what's good and what's what's better, and what's worse. Um. Okay. Well, I, I honestly I think that's a little naive, but I don't think we're gonna get anywhere further on that. If I mean that's what you, I don't think that there's research to actually support that. Um, if you look at Jonathan Haidt's research on morality, I think um, the book Rational Mind, he's, he, there's a lot of research he does in other outside of Western culture. And I agree with you that Westerners, yeah, have a common cultural morality, but generally morality is shaped by culture. And I don't think that we you can I, I, I don't think there's much research to support the fact that, oh, we can you know, there's a, some sort of convergence that we're going to be able to come to with like let's say eastern countries they don't i mean they don't they still believe the commands from the government you obey i mean even after world war one or whatever none of that has changed and they they went through world war one too so i just think it's kind of difficult i don't i mean i don't think we're going to come to an agreement on this particular issue so we'll probably have to just move on from this but i, I just don't think that that's very su supported by the research well i think it is because uh um at the at the very base of it all, our brains are all wired the same way. We all have a sense of fairness. We all have a sense of empathy, and um, and I, I don't mean, think it's naive to say that. That's why I'm pointing out to you that I think, like, if you look at Jonathan Haidt, he's a psychologist and moral research on moral psychology. He specifically shows that many cultures do not have the same sense of fairness that Western cultures do. Right. So I'm Western not saying they do. What I'm saying is that is that if we agree on the goal, then we can eventually determine what's better and what's worse for that goal. And yeah, if, what I'm if, saying is the research shows that we don't really agree on that goal. Right, and, and human it, beings that's, don't. That's okay that human beings don't agree on that goal. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that okay. if we do agree on a on a goal, and if we can convince people that that goal is what we mean when we're talking about morality, then we can produce objective good and bad um, criteria for that goal. Now, if you're – like I said, if you're talking about something different when you say morality, like your, uh, your morality is just whatever God says, then you're absolutely right. There is no um, – there's no way to come to a consensus. But I don't think that's what most people are talking about when they're talking about morality. That, that's – that's the phrase that I probably disagree with, and we can. I mean, I think we have to agree to disagree at this point. But I don't think the most people agree that that part where you say most people, that's not really supported. I would say. So that's just from my perspective, but obviously we can disagree on that. Okay.
All right. So, um, yeah, I don't know where you want to go from here. But, um, yeah, we have to just kind of I think that it's just I do agree that we can kind of convince each other that uh, that culture can convince people. But I don't think it's going to be based on the same things that you, you're talking about, like fairness, blah, 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 those type of uh, those type of things. Are, I just don't think that they're su- that's supported by research. Well, it is because we are why our brains are, a, a Eastern brain is not wired differently than a Western brain is. They're both they have the same fundamental structures. But the thing is, I don't think that just because it's wired the same does not you can't find the fairness wiring in your brain you know i, I yeah, don't you i don't maybe you're okay how, how are you okay tell me about that because i haven't I, I mean you can inform me let me know okay well it's um it's basically a combination of the uh the vent- ventral striatum amygdala uh orbitofrontal cortex uh and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex uh, cortex that's uh, deep in our brains. It has uh, it's pretty much the same structure in all humans. Um, and then add on to that uh, the um, uh, what is it? The anterior insula, which is also uh, controls our be- disgust reactions to bad tastes and smells. And that is what we found to be the core of what we consider fairness. Uh, that's it, those structures that even exist in other primates, uh, we can do uh, find we find that they have a, a similar sense of fairness than uh, um, to the one that we generally have. I mean, it's not nothing about specifics. That's obviously controlled by the um, by culture, but we all have the same underlying hardware. That, yeah, but uh, that's is, our... I mean that is that's what I would that's the point that I would argue is right there is it that it's driven by culture and the fairness only applies to this very small subset of people. Well, you except it's not you, driven. Well, it's not driven by culture. Culture is driven by our the hardware that we have. Where does where does the fairness extend to? But can you argue that there's a f- sense of fairness wired into the brain that I will not harm someone that I don't know or that I feel is a threat to me? Or whatever. Well, that's that's not fairness. That's more empathy. Okay. Well, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, maybe let's talk about empathy well, then. Can well, you empathy is that? a different part of the brain. It's the anterior insular cortex. So yeah, it's um, <laughs> if they if you um if you view them as part of your tribe, then yes, you're. Uh, that's exactly my empathy. point. Right? How do you know but, who you view as part of your tribe? That's. In, very individual. That's but it shaped by culture, but, right? But, is it not? No, actually, it's not. It's actually shaped okay. by your individual. It's very individual. Well, what I'm arguing is, and I'm basing this on, I'm not an expert on this. Maybe you, maybe you know a lot more about it than I am. So you could tell me. But you know, Jonathan Haidt, right? And also, and I, maybe the more popular conception of this, the popular book, it would be the one by Sebastian Younger on tribes, right? They talk about morality in those and how it only, it really is only for your own tribe. And it's very difficult for the, for us to extend those things to people outside of our tribe, right? And I think right, you, you would agree with that. Difficult doesn't mean, that, in, right? But difficult doesn't mean impossible, or it means it doesn't mean do it can't do be done. 
So then how do you do that? Are you familiar with Steven Pinker's work? Yes. Okay. Well, he's been able to graph uh, the decline in violence over uh, over history. Um, so yes, you know, when we talk about individuals specifics, it may seem overwhelming and um, daunting about how you change someone's opinion. But you know, telling them that God wants them to do something is not going to change their mind. Um, and no, so, it's not. And I, I never argued that it would, right? Right. But usually um, when Christians are throwing up these red flags, there's usually the implication that their God story somehow fixes it, all these uh, problems. And so, yes, we do have this problem about how do we convince people that um, that stabbing other people randomly is bad for their health because they don't want other people stand, stabbing them ra randomly. But mm -hmm. it, I don't think it's an impossible task. And if we're going to take Steven Pinker's um, research seriously, then we can see that overall, um, just from a specific uh, statistician-style look at everything that's happening in the world, that we are becoming a lot less tribal, we're, we are becoming a lot less violent, we are becoming a lot less um, just, um, you know, there's a lot less sure, problems sure. happening in the yeah. world. So, um, so there's some sort of uh, consensus that we are achieving. I mean, yes, it's yeah, taken yeah. thousands of years. Yes, you know, we have specific tribal issues because that's also uh, in, uh, hard coded into our brains. So we do have these issues that we have to overcome, but I don't think it's fair to say that because we have these issues that seem daunting that it can't be done. Yeah, and I agree with you. I agree 100% with all the, what you said the last couple of minutes. I'm not arguing against that. I'm just asking you how in actuality has it been done over the last thousands of years, a thousand years or so. I agree with you about moral progress. I think there can be moral progress, especially from you and I, we're both Westerners, right? So we both, from my perspective, at least, we probably have more similar morality. And so based on that, if we're, if we, let's say just you and I, forget other people, you and I, we can come to a consensus of what is good, what is morality, what is well-being. Based on that, we, I could say, yeah, there's been moral progress. So I can agree with you on that. But how did it actually happen? You know, how uh, did three, these last thousand of years actually create, like, push us towards a less violent society? In a lot of different ways. Um, like I said, World War One was a big wake-up call for a lot of the world. Um, so violence is obviously one way that it's done. Uh, the Enlightenment was also another way um, that was up, uh, that it happened through um, – uh, this idea of um, conversation and doing experiments and seeing what is real and what is false about the world. Um, because, you know, I know a lot of atheists say that you can't be unreasoned out of, uh, you can't be reasoned out of any position that you haven't been reasoned into. But I don't think that's actually true. I think that um, people at a fundamental level level have a sense of empathy for other people. They may not have it for a wide range of people, but they do have it for other people. They have a sense of fairness. They understand that, um, you know, whether you're a liberal or a Republican, 
most of those arguments are about fairness. They're just focusing on fairness in a different direction than the other person is. And so we know we have the sense of fairness. We know we have the sense of empathy because most people are not going to go around and murder, unless there's something seriously wrong with them, they're not going to be going around murdering their own family. They're not going to be going around murdering uh, their friends. Um, and so I think we can, if we have this conversation, uh, we've already had the big wars that sort of have shaken us out of this, um, I, some of the more intractable ideas. So, and I think if we have the conversation, we let people, people's natural uh, selfishness sort of help out with that and sort of point out that, hey, don't you think it would be better if you had um, a decent uh, living wage than if you didn't have a decent living wage? Don't you think it would be better if people weren't being um, ostracized from their communities just because they happen to uh, – have different attractions than uh, you do? Um, what if you had um, different uh, sexual procl uh, proclivities than what your society uh, thinks? Don't you think it would be a f a more fair to, um, to be able to uh, allow you to express what you want to do rather than just being shunned by everyone? So we have these we have these tools to actually be able to communicate with people, to let them see, to take a bigger um, understand, to have them uh, able to expand their uh, spheres of concerns. And I think uh, if we do that, then eventually, um, I eventually, you know, it'll be all humankind. I mean, hell, it may take an alien invasion to get there. Um, or, you know, we may have enough time that um, we can do it just through uh, conversation. But I think at some point it almost has to happen. Hmm. I'm, I mean, I don't share your confidence, I guess. But I do like, I mean, I love the vision that you're painting of um, that type of world. I don't share the confidence that, that those things will actually get us there. I don't, um, I guess I would say that the big gap between you and I is probably just how do you get outside of your tribe? You know, maybe, yeah, yeah, there's fairness, there's empathy for people within your tribe. I agree with that. I don't yeah. think that historically they're like, if you go to ancient times, Romans, Greeks, whatever, they don't, they didn't care about people outside their tribe really at all. Right. So but if you look at Europe, but if you look at Europe now, uh, yeah, there's, so a pretty, there's a pretty yeah. big contrast between ancient Roman times and Europe now, right? Well, what I would argue, and again, you're going to disagree with this, so that's fine. <laughs> but this is just my perspective, and I'll just share it with you, mm -hmm. is that it, it happens culturally. There's a culture that somehow shifted that from us saying, what are our tribes, only caring about our tribes, the power and dominance of Ro Greeks and Romans, the other, the, I mean, many other types of morality out there uh, in the world. But the the culture is what shaped us to get from uh, I'm going to only care about my own family and my own tribe to let me care about a wider sphere of people. And we're still in that, right? We're still making, right. trying to make progress with that. So I think it was the, and I think that the arguments, the rational arguments, that, I mean, you can see it in public discourse today. I don't think they really fly with people. They People will, 
just shut themselves off from it. You know, it's really a whole culture that an experience. I agree with you. Some of it is experience that has to come around, but it's not just experience. It has to be the stories and the the narratives that are shaped around those experiences that will push um, a whole culture in a certain direction. The war you you say World War Two or World War One, those wars and how we learn from them. I agree that we learn from them, but there's been violent wars throughout all of human history. They didn't learn from them. But for some reason, we're starting to learn from these things. And I think it's because there's a cultural narrative that has kind of shaped those things. Right, and I have to you, argue. Go ahead. But wouldn't you agree that cultures are made up of people and that the culture changes because the people change? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Okay. So what I would – but what I would argue, and I, this is the part you're, you're really not going to like, but what I would argue is that the, the thing that shifted from, let's say, Roman and Greek culture to – this modern Western, you know, humanist culture is this Judeo-Christian like background. It was real. This culture has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values for the past 2000 years, maybe 1500 years. Well, and that's really what pushed us. That's really what made that shift and that change. I mean, obviously, you may not and you may you may say, OK, that, that you, you may not agree with that because you read the Bible differently or whatever. But look at how people actually implemented it. What are the teachings that people are actually trying to? So I agree that culture can shift it. And I agree with you that it's not just by telling people this is what God says. But it's through the shaping of the culture and the stories and the narratives around that culture that I think really should push people into a positive morality. Well, yeah, but the problem with this whole idea that um, Judeo-Christian values somehow shaped our culture it's correct, but not in the way the Christian really thinks it is, because there's no democracy in the Bible. Um, there's no equality between women and men in the Bible. Um, there's no um, there's no anti-slavery in the Bible. Um, there's no being kind to homosexuals in the Bible. Um, the reason that um, the shaping that the Judeo-Christian um, values did to the Western society is not the values and shaping that the Christians would like us to believe it was. Um, and it's the people acting in spite of what their their Bible says that um, brought about anti-slavery, that brought about equality between men and women, that um, that brought about that is currently now bringing about equality for um, people that have different sexual preferences than the than uh, the majority um, so to say that um, we were shaped by Christian religion is true but I don't think it's true in the way you would really like it to be because it's it's all those people ignoring their Bible that are make, shaping the society into something that's actually fair and equitable for everyone involved. Well, I think that that would depend on – because you say make the statement ignoring their Bible, right? Obviously, I wouldn't agree with that, right? So we'd have to get into what does the Bible actually say. But I would well, argue yeah, – Most like, Christians like, don't know what the Bible actually says. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can that's, kind of agree with that. I can agree with that. I'm not saying I'm not going to. Well, that's what the data shows. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with that. But what yeah. I would say is, look at the people who, let, let's say, let's take slavery. 
Look at the abolitionists. Maybe you think that they're misreading their Bible, right? No, but I don't think they were misreading. Does mis- that matter? I, no, I don't think they were misreading the Bible. I think they were out and out ignoring the Bible. Okay, let's say I think it was enlightenment. It was more enlightenment values that were shaped that, not the Bible, not Judeo-Christian values. It was enlightenment values that shaped that. Let's say they were ignoring the Bible. Would they say they're ignoring the Bible? Um. Well, they would say they were not ignoring the Bible at the same time that they hadn't read it. So um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure they're. Like, let's say William Wilberforce, right? He, you know, ball. He was one of the main key figures in abolishing. Do you think he would say I, I? You would really argue that he hasn't one, he hasn't read the Bible, and two, that he's ignoring it. That he would say that. Well, he's only one person. Um, the okay. movement was. Uh, had millions of people in it, not just one person. So you and would, okay, a lot of those people were. So, for example, um, if you go back and actually read the arguments that were made for slavery, they were all biblical. They had chapter, verse, um, everything in them, and it was there was never any non-biblical justification made for um, in support of slavery. However, if you go to the other side and read what they were writing, they almost never quoted the Bible. They quoted um, natural human dignity. They quoted um, just vague God loves everyone and tells us to love our neighbors, that kind of thing. But they never, ever quoted the Bible. And so, um, so yes, I think what they may have known what the Bible said and they may be, have been actively ignoring it. Or they may have been doing what a lot of the Christians these days do and reinterpreting the Bible to say something it doesn't. Um, and, they, and there were a lot of non-Christians also involved, people that uh, were other religions and no religion at all. Um, but the reality is, is that the Bible does not is not an anti-slavery book. You have to either read that into the book or um, just ignore the book. You, there's no other way to make it say anything about anti-slavery. I mean, I agree with you that they're reading it differently, but I wouldn't say that they're, I mean, I, I honestly think that like the chapter verse type of thing is not really how you read the Bible. Like Jesus never did that, right? I'm so sure when there's you, a lot if, of Christians that would disagree with you. <laughs> I'm sure there are too. I'm sure there are too, but I'm saying that but I'm saying, and we can we can have the argument that argument. But what I'm saying is, I don't read the. I'm. I mean, I've been pretty clear about this. I'm not a fundamentalist. I do mm-hmm. think atheists generally read the Bible very similarly to the way fundamentalists read it, and we, and I completely disagree with both the way. I had to hate to say this, both the way you're reading the Bible, and the way the slave those uh, slaveholders were reading the Bible, and the way fundamentalists read the Bible. And I think that they're all similar. Well, so the only I, thing I, I can do is read. Missing, Go ahead. Well, all I can do is just read the words that are on the paper. Um, and words either mean something or they don't. And if that's how the people that understand the Greek that it was originally written in chose to um, uh, chose to interpret the, those words so that their the English words mean what they mean, I mean. <laughs> I, I'm not going to uh, change, start changing the definition of words just to try to save a religion I don't believe in. So, but that's not the definition of the words. 
That's the thing. Language has never worked that way. Never. I mean, you look at the postmodernists, look at the deconstructors, look at their, 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 I mean, literature yeah. has never been read that way. You don't read the book law. You don't read the Bible like it's a law book. And that's the problem. That's the problem well, with the, not just the Bible says it's OK to beat your slave um, as long as they don't die within a few days. It also says you can pass down one human being to another uh, to your descendants. I don't know how else to read that. You're reading it like it's a law book, aren't you? I am reading it like the words written down on the page say. I mean, if words the Bible that are says written down a, on the page always have context, right? There's different genres. There's different types of literature. There's different things that the author is trying to communicate. If you just read the word flat, you're reading it like it's a law code, and that is not what the Bible is at all, whatsoever. According to the Bible, God said to execute a person because they were picking up sticks. What is the context that makes that okay? The What is the context that makes it? You have to read it in the context of that it's, it's a full-on story. The Bible itself okay. attacks itself. It is in deep conversation with each other. It there are elements of the Bible that will attack that very verse that you said. They contradict each other. Yes, they yeah. contradict each other, and that's a feature of the Bible. The Bible disagrees with itself, and that's how it was intentionally written. This is well, something that atheists do not understand, fundamentalists do not understand about the Bible because they haven't studied it. The, if you look at ancient Jewish interpretation, they intentionally put side by side contradictory interpretations constantly because that is a feature of Jewish literature. Contradiction is a feature of Jewish literature. The tension that God is a punishing God, yet the tension that he is a merciful God is put side by side in the Bible as an extreme. That's maybe the, the, the biggest tension in the Bible because it's trying to create a story of what is God really like? Who is he? And that's a feature. Well, if you can't trust the words that are actually on the page, then I don't see how you can use it as any sort of reference for anything or justification for anything. Again, you're. Re I mean, I I understand where that comes from because uh, Westerners were never we're ne we don't have a high emphasis in literature. We don't have a high emphasis on reading, um, understanding really like the humanities. It's all stems STEM education these days. But like it, the way that well, literature I, generally so works, just, not so like just what just to give you a background of where I come from. I've actually read hundreds of different religious texts. Um, from Egyptian to uh, Aztec, all over the world, Aborigines around the world. So to say that um, I haven't studied the I'm subject matters. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that is generally the Western perception of or how we read texts. We read them propositionally, right? Well, if God wasn't going to uh, – didn't create something that was going to take that into account, then it sounds like that's his fault, not the atheist or the fundamentalists. We're not saying whose fault it is. I'm not like God – God – I don't think he's necessarily blaming anyone. He's not going to say it's your fault that you didn't understand but me. That's not do what you believe? Do you believe in a eternal conscious torment of some sort after we die, or are you an annihilationist? Um, I'm undecided on that point, actually, but I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, if 
if our fate is an eternal conscious torment of some sort, regardless of whether that's solitary confinement or fires of hell, then don't you think it does behoove God to um, be a little bit more clear about what he's saying? It's not, again, clarity is subjective, right? Well, it shouldn't be if our eternal souls are on the line. A lot of the arguments that come down to it is just like, I don't feel like it's clear for me, so I'm not going to accept it. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I have to like try to get behind a little bit of what you're saying, because when you say those certain things, it, it just doesn't ring to me. And I have to ask you, where does that come from? Like, how do you why do you feel like it's not clear? Right. Because so, 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 from a like, Christian, it'd be very clear. Right. Well, you just went on so, a, a five minute uh, explanation of why it's not clear. It's, so I did. That's that's not how I would interpret it. I'm saying that that's how Jewish literature works. I'm not saying that it's unclear. Well, if, well, if we Jewish if we have, people would have felt very clear about that, but for us, well, we're not sure. It's unclear because it's a different culture, right? Right, but we're not Jewish. So it, are we all supposed to become um, Jewish scholars in order to understand the Bible? You don't need to become Jewish scholars, no, but you do need to understand the Bible in the form of a story, which is a very basic way of understanding it. It's been educated out of us. We don't right, but there's like 12,000, there's what, like 12, 16,000 denomination, Christian denominations in the world. I mean, and they all, they're all different denominations because they all interpret the Bible differently. So why are, if it's so clear, if it's so um, understandable, then why are there so, many, so much disagreement? I'm not saying it's necessarily clear, and I'm not necessarily saying it's necessarily clear to you. I'm saying clarity is subjective. It's difficult to determine. So to put it, clarity it, as a value is not doesn't make sense to me. Clarity is just for some of, people's clear, some people's not. That's it. Well, yeah, but clarity is sort of important if your eternal soul is on the. I mean, shouldn't that be a value? Clarity if your eternal soul is on the line. If your eternal soul is on the line, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't. Characterize it like that again, but if I think that it there, if you read the Bible and you read it in a way that you're like open to it, you in a way that you're like at a very basic level, you will see these things. I think that that's what Jesus came and you know Jesus came and he's the one who critiqued the exact verses that you're citing to me. Like I, I think that's pretty obvious. It's really obvious to me. Well, he he also said he wasn't here to change the law. So um, he was. Did he so, say that? Yeah, he did. That's what did he say? that's the red the red lettering of it. He said, "I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law." That's different. That's not saying he didn't come to change it. He he intentionally well, abolishing, the word. Abolishing the law is changing, right? It's he's not. Yeah, he hasn't come to get rid of it, but he's come to complete or fulfill it. That's what the. Greek word is he didn't say I come to keep the law. It's very different. The uh, Hebrews said that the Old Testament is obsolete. I mean, these are very plain things in the New Testament, but people choose to ignore them. Well, Jesus it didn't say what Jesus didn't say it was obsolete. He said, uh, well, anyways, I don't want to argue what specifics of the Bible. It's like arguing which way the unicorn horn spirals, unless you can pr produce a unicorn. This sort of but no, I think this is very important because you're arguing that the Bible's unclear, 
you're arguing that the Bible supports slavery. You're arguing a lot of you. You're imposing your interpretation of the Bible on this argument, on this discussion. I just don't well, like I agree with your interpretation, right? And I think it's pretty plain. Okay. For, well, I will let you argue with the other sixteen thousand uh, Christian denominations about yeah, it. Yeah, and, and then once you know, you all decide what's clear, uh, what's the Bible's actually saying. Then we can have a discussion about it. I'm sure. Like I'm, I'm perfectly, I, I'm amenable to that argument. You're like, hey, we don't understand what the Bible says. Let's not say what the Bible says until you guys sort it out. Fine, fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. But that's not the argument that you're making, right? You're making the argument that you do understand what the Bible says. That's different. Well, if, the argument, if you uh, want to concede that you don't understand and nobody understands yet, that's fine. I'm cool with that argument. But if well, you're I'm, telling what me, what I'm saying is that there's nowhere in the Bible where it says owning a human being is wrong. Where it says what? Owning another human being is wrong. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. Again, you're reading the Bible in a specific way that actually only fundamentalists. Okay, so where, what's way, the right? text that says that? And it's not 1600. It's not 1600 denominations that disagree with me. It's a very slim number of denominations that actually read the Bible the way that you're reading it. Okay, well, so what's the passage that says that owning a hum, another human being is wrong? The book of Philemon is basically saying, hey, you need to re- you need to release your slaves. It, the entire Bible is about freeing slaves. I mean, we could talk about uh, this all day. But <laughs> again, you're reading. If you want to, if you want to argue about interpretation, I'm happy to argue about it with you. But you isn't the whole point of the Bible is you have to be God's slave? Isn't the whole point you have to do whatever God says? You're basically his slave. Remember, I I told you <laughs> you can't read the Bible that way. It's not, well, isn't that what you said? Morality was the Bible intentionally contradicts, right? Did, didn't you say that morality was doing whatever God says? The Bible morality is according to the, the ark and the scripture of where God's leading, but it's not a specific command that comes down in the Bible. You can't read it that way. You know, right, you can't say, pretty... this text right here says this. Therefore, that's it. That's called proof texting, right? It's very we know that you're not supposed to do that. I think you probably know that too, right? You can't just pull out one text and say, this is it, done. Okay, so your your argument is that uh, morality is whatever God says. And if uh, you don't do what he says, then he's either going to torture you for all eternity or just kill you dead um, because you don't know whether you're an annihilationist or uh eternal conscious tormentor, and it doesn't matter if the revelation he provides is clear or not um, so that people can actually have a solid foundation on which to determine which way they're headed, um, and that um, that doesn't matter because um, clarity isn't a virtue, and somehow that is supposed to be okay. So apparently, I'm confused as to what exactly the through line uh, message of your argument is there. Can you sort the, of help? The clearest point here is just that you're reading you're reading the Bible in a very very flat way, which leads to a lot of these problems for you. Well, okay. Well, if you can uh, provide the definitive um, esog esogesis of the Bible that all Christians agree on, then I will read that before reading the Bible next time. Well, Deal? again, you're you're imposing the the criteria that all Christians have to agree, right? I'm not. I mean, that's not my criteria whatsoever, right? 
Well, if Christians can't even agree on what the Bible is telling them, and they supposedly have the Holy Spirit whispering in their ear, I mean, do you agree that Christians have the Holy Spirit whispering in their ear trying to help so them understandings? Saying, so are you saying that in order for anything to be true, everyone has to agree? No. Okay, then. That, then that's I'm saying how that, I would respond to that, so too. Do you do you agree? Is it your position that uh, Christians have the Holy Spirit to help them interpret what the Bible is saying? Yeah, obviously, yes. Okay, so is, are you? Is it your position that the Holy Spirit will tell one Christian something different than um, another Christian? Yeah, there's obviously a lot of different people who call themselves Christians that may or may not be listening to the Holy Spirit may or may not be interpreting it the same way. And the way language works is it's very contextual. So there so are definitely yes no? different perspectives, definitely, for sure. And if you want so to say that, a- that those are con- contradictory or different, then sure, yes. But I don't think that that's exactly what you're saying. So is that a yes or a no as to whether the Holy Spirit is um, whispering different things into different ears? Yes, that's a yes. That's a very strong yes. So the Holy Spirit is will tell you the Bible means something different than it tells, say, a fundamentalist what it means? Yes, yeah, it will. Not, so you're, not the way that you're looking at it. You're looking at, at so, <laughs> truth is just a flat thing. I'm saying, yes, a fundamentalist lives in a different world than I do. So the Holy Spirit's going to interpret that for that person's world. It may not be, or or maybe that person's not even listening to the Holy Spirit. We don't know, okay? That's different. You cannot make these certain so conclusions. So you're, you're saying God lies? You disagree. So Are you're saying God lies? No, I didn't say that whatsoever. I mean, I, okay, let's back up, okay? Because I think you're trying to, I mean, if you don't I, want to. I'm just to, trying to understand how this all works. That's why I'm Are asking you? the questions. Yes. Are you? Because I am. Well, listen because to what I'm saying, right? Listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying there's different perspectives. Are I there not different what perspectives? You're saying, you what you're that? saying seems to contradict itself. So if, and I'm just trying to get a coherent story out of this. So if, so if, would you agree that a fundamentalist thinks that the Bible says that homosexuality, homosexuality is an abomination? Yes, I would agree with that. Okay, and would you agree that, uh, and I don't know what the liberal, like someone from the Unitarian uh, Church that's a Christian, believes that the Holy Spirit is telling them that uh, homosexuality homosexuality is not an abomination? Would you agree with that? Mm, I, I sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we've got the Holy Spirit telling one person one thing, and we've got the Holy Spirit telling another person that the exact opposite. One of those is a lie, right? That's a very narrow way of looking at truth or lies. You're looking yeah. at it in factual Standard or not condition. factual, correct or not correct, true or false. That's how you're looking at it. That's not the way the Bible works. Then I don't give a fuck about the Bible. <laughs> I mean, if that's obvious, right? Make his mind about whether homosexuality is an abomination or not, no, then no. I don't care what he says or the Bible you're says. Imposing, or else. You're saying that the Bible has to be this way. It has to tell me the truth in this one particular way, fact or false, true or not. It doesn't care about feelings. It just cares about what's true or not. More. That's not the way the Bible works, and that's not what the Bible is. You're imposing your view on the Bible 
on me and on your and you're asserting your interpretation of the Bible over all Christians. And you're like, hey, my interpretation is this. And because my interpretation is this and look at how many contradictions there are, the Bible must be wrong and I don't give a whatever about the Bible. <laughs> and that's totally your prerogative. But that is not a cohesive argument to me. That's just your interpretation. It has nothing to well, do with the historical Christianity. You're not listening. Actually, it's not, it's not my interpretation. Right. It's your interpretation. You're saying that God tells one person one thing and tells another person the exact opposite. So he's it's lying to one of them. Imposing the fact that this is an opposite of that. I'm telling you it's different perspectives, right? Do you agree that – do you know that there's – you know there's different perspectives on things, right? Like yes, somebody some, say some of those perspectives accurately map that. reality and others don't. Well, how do you know what is accurately mapped to reality then? Well, you're telling me that God is on both sides of the issue. So I don't know. That's my problem is if it tells me if I, if God is both thinks that homosexuality is an abomination and doesn't think that it's an abomination, then you're describing a logical in, uh, impossibility at that point. It's not a logical impossibility. So you're There's, saying God, God, God thinks that homosexuality is both an abomination no, no, no. and not an abomination at the same time? I, I mean, I've, I've said this many times, but one, not everyone actually listens to the Spirit just because they're Christians. I did not say that. You said, okay, then we need to go back because when I asked you if the uh, liberal Christian had the Holy Spirit telling them that homosexuality was not an abomination, you said yes. So is that a so is that different is are is they not are they not uh, is the holy spirit not telling them that i think I, if they tell me that, that that that's their interpretation i can leave it at that because that can, well i don't care about their i don't care about point. their interpretation i'm t asking what god is actually t saying to these people is I god actually yep. saying that homosexuality is not an abomination to the liberal christian what, what relevance does that have though because I, I, on a practical level that doesn't help us if I say yes or no, it doesn't help move this conversation for whatsoever. There, there's no like cause, because we cannot determine in actual practice and in our actual like trying to well, figure if, out is homosexuality right or wrong. If you don't have a coherent Christian story, then why should anyone even care? You're imposing your definition of what coherence is on the Bible. Well, right? I'm sorry, I go over i go with the standard definitions of logic reason and um coherence i'm sorry that's a problem for you but those aren't the standard those are a certain way like atheists look at it i mean if you if you want to see what standard is how do you know what the standard of logic is right i mean i don't think the majority of are people you, who read the bible will read it the way you do to be honest well yes there's there's there's, there's very little logic reading people, the bible but, Yes, there's very little logic or reasonableness when people start reading the Bible. I would agree on that. That's another assertion that you're 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 not willing to even consider that maybe there is. You're already asserting a priori, or you're having this presupposition that the Bible. You just told me that God believes two uh, directly opposing things. So <laughs> I'm That's not. I'm not asserting anything. I'm going with what you just told me. I'm if not, you're telling you are me mutually exclusive me. things, then you can't blame me for for not for two having problems with it. They are not two mutually exclusive things. That's your logic that says that they're two mutually exclusive things. Human logic is limited by the information that you have. Do you okay. claim to have That's all the information? <laughs>
Okay, well, can we're I, not getting can any. I jump in, can I jump in here? here, here this is, um, Sorry, I didn't this, mean to say that. Uh, this, it's, this has genuinely been really fascinating to listen to. And um, Daniel, I have to uh, congratulate you. you. I think you are the only person I've ever heard talk so enthusiastically uh, about uh, apparent contradictions in the Bible. And I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. I'm, I actually mean that mean that genuinely you you've welcomed it with open arms in a way that I honestly have never heard anyone say before and it, it was genuinely refreshing for me to hear you say that and I'll I hope that someday you and I will be able to have a, a further exploration on that because I again I mean that as a genuine mm, yes. uh, compliment I I don't know what to do with it uh, but but your enthusiasm uh behind that is is yeah. clearly genuine and, and clearly heartfelt if i um darren if i if i may speak for be so bold as to to speak for you for for a few moments i i think some of what's if i can try and unpack the last 10 minutes or so some of what's been said and i, and I think i share the position that that darren's in there as well is because this is something that was taught to me as a as a youngster growing up and uh, growing up as a christian and in various churches that we ought to be able to expect uh, clarity on certain things that the Bible's telling us. And uh, if I'm hearing right from you, Daniel, you're saying that that is uh, an unreasonable expectation. Uh, again, correct me if I'm, if I'm representing to you wrongly. So I think that is, is, a, is a summary of, of the last 10 minutes. Now, I don't know how we unpick that. So unless one of you two wants to just clarify very, very quickly what, I'm, what I've just said, I'll try and move the conversation on a little bit. I'm good with moving on. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, let, let's move on. It, it, is, it has been fascinating because you're both clearly very intelligent and you're both clearly very thoughtful and I've really enjoyed listening to the last 10 minutes well sorry to the last hour and 10 minutes let me correct that um, but moving on a little bit and I, I think Darren mentioned uh, or touched on this subject a little bit more about uh, about the clarity and the, the homosexuality issue so I, I'd just like to ask a little bit more directly Daniel where we've got situations where we have different Christians some Christians which say that the Bible forbids homosexuality and same-sex marriages are, are just off the table from a, a morality perspective. Yeah. Uh, and we do have Christians which celebrate those relationships and actively participate in uh, either in those relationships because that's their sexuality or in blessing those relationships uh, as uh, somebody from the church. So and I think this is probably one of the biggest issues and controversies facing modern Christianity today. It possibly is the equivalent of the slavery discussions 200 years ago um, in terms of the impact on, on the church, that is. Uh, so so I guess the question I want to, to ask you is, how do, where am I going with this? So those Christians obviously get it from the Bible. So let's imagine a neutral Christian uh, in that position, and they're trying to, and they hear both views and both both arguments. How do they go to the Bible and determine what is right? Because it's almost, and again, if I'm putting words into your mouth, please correct me. But it's almost as if what's happening is 
that third person who wants to, to, to decide which is the best road to go to. And they go to the Bible and they read it. It is almost as though they're now going to the Bible to find their version of truth. Yeah. So you're asking how would someone come to the Bible and sort this out? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a really good question. I do think, and I'm going to say it again. I've been saying it many times, but the just even the the desire or the the pre, the premise of just hey, I have this moral question. I'm going to come to the Bible to get the answer is not the right way to approach it. I don't think that the Bible is meant to be a moral law code. That's not its primary function. Can morality come out of the story of the Bible? Most definitely, yes. Does the Bible give you moral direction? Most definitely, yes. But it's not, is blank, blank, blank a sin? And I, I fully admit there's a lot of Christians who will come to the Bible with this question and constantly ask, is XXX a sin? And that's the only thing they care about. If you read the Bible, it's not even trying to answer those questions. The vast majority of the Bible is not trying to tell you is blank a sin or not. That's not its purpose. It, this purpose is the vast majority of the Bible is either poetry or narrative. And if, as poetry and narrative, it's not trying to answer those those answers, those questions of morality. So I think approaching the Bible immediately with that question is already the incorrect approach. And I agree that, hey, well, a lot of us do it that way. But I do think that that's because we've been trained to read the Bible propositionally um, from a dogmatic lens, from a, as I have to say, this a modern Western Enlightenment lens. Now we're going to examine this. We're going to look at it and just see what it says. And that's it. We're not going to get caught up in the story. We don't care about the emotions. We don't care about the context. We don't care about the big, huge arc of what God's doing. We don't care about the people. We don't care about the characters. We just want to know, is this a sin or not? And I think that's the complete wrong way of looking at the Bible. So if you're going to come up with an answer of the, let's say the the the, the controversial topic of homosexuality, you have to consider the full story of that that thing first before you're going to be able to understand where what is a homosexual person supposed to do, or what is a person who's like a parent of a homosexual supposed to do. So I think that the Bible does teach that homosexuality is quote-unquote a sin uh, that's i would say it does okay but i don't think that when i say that you immediately think certain things if i say that a uh, homosexual might immediately think certain things because because we're mapping our concept of sin onto the bible a, a western concept of sin of you're wrong you're punished you're an individual you go to hell that's actually a very western concept of sin and that's not a jewish concept that's not the way jewish people dealt with sin so when, when I say, oh, homosexuality is sin, you hear a lot of condemnation for that homosexual. I don't think that that's the Bible's intent. It's not trying to condemn the, in the, these sinners. Like Jesus said, he didn't come to condemn sinners. That's not the point. The Bible, yes, will say certain things are sin or not sin. But the point is not to say you're wrong, you're bad, you fix yourself, otherwise you're going to hell. That is not the point of the Bible whatsoever. So, I mean – to get into the whole story, we'd have to get into the whole story. I don't think we have time for that. But that's kind of like how I would say you cannot approach it that way. There's a lot more complexities to it. And it's within the context of a story 
of the story of the Bible, of what God's doing, that the concept of sin comes out. And sin is not what we think it is. It is not so individualistic. It is not so um, punishment oriented as what we think. And it's not as condemned. It's not as condemned. I don't know what the word is. It's not intended to condemn as much as we think it is. Those are Western things that we're reading on top of the Bible. So, uh, Darren, does that help you at all? Don't take the Bible quite so literally. Don't don't open the Bible expecting to see a, a rule or a black and white answer to a specific moral question. Enjoy it for for the narratives and, and the stories uh, and even the poetry that it tells. But don't go in, don't go to it looking for rules of life. Does that help you appreciate the Bible any more at all? Uh, no, I've actually read the Bible before. It's not all that great, well written. Um, so if there's no morals to be found in the Bible, then the poetry and everything else isn't all that great. So. Uh, okay. Um, right. I I'm wouldn't gonna expect ask... anything less from <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, I, I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Darren, but you don't have I was going to say the benefit possibly uh, I guess it depends on your perspective but you don't have the same background as myself you weren't brought up with a culture of reading the bible weekly or daily you weren't brought up in a culture of, of in the habit of going to church on a on a weekly even more regular basis is that correct yeah no I was never indoctrinated into any religion okay so it could be that your the way that you see the bible is even different to the way that that I, I see the Bible in many ways on that, even though we may find that we agree on a lot of things. So, um, but Daniel, I'd like to go back to you. And, um, I'm, this is almost a leading question. I'm going to lay it out in front of you to be as honest uh, as possible. And I'm certainly not trying to lay a trap, but we did have a conversation uh, only last week with, with somebody who was suggesting a much more literalist interpretation of the Bible, certainly when it comes to to sexual attraction, almost to the point of, and um, I don't want to put words into, into this person's mouth, but it, it felt like what was being said was that if somebody does not believe that or does not accept that uh, same-sex attraction is a sin and they are engaged in, in a same-sex relationship, even though they, they practice as a Christian, then when it comes to the day of judgment, they may even find themselves not going into heaven because of that. Is is that a view that that you can endorse at all? I'm I'm kind of predicting you're going to say no to that, but uh, answer it as as honestly as you can on that one. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't agree with that at all. To be honest, I think that that kind of very narrow way of uh, fundamentalist way of I would characterize as fundamentalist way of reading the Bible viewing heaven and hell those things are very damaging um damaging not only to the, the church and the christian faith and to the gospel itself but just damaging to people in general and i think that that's uh, to be honest that's i don't want to be too strong in the words but i would say the word terrible <laughs> so yeah that's my opinion on that uh, okay and um i guess the the other question i guess which comes from that is um, certainly in our culture today, in in a lot of and certainly in areas specifically sexuality, but it's not only sexuality. Uh, there are very vocal Christians who who want to see changes to the law, even to to protect certain 
certain actions and same certainly in the UK when we had a law passed to allow same-sex marriage a few years ago there were campaigns in parliament and there were campaigns by Christians to to not allow that law to happen to to keep marriage between a man and a woman so the Christians that feel really strongly on that if you're Mm. saying that the Bible possibly isn't the right place to get that kind of rule from where is the best way for if a, for a Christian who feels strongly about that, who is seeking to God for what is the right thing to do, whether they should support this new law or whether they should uh, oppose it? If the Bible isn't the best place for them to get that guidance from, what would you say to the Christian who needs to do that? I don't I don't I wouldn't say that the Bible is not the best place to get that guidance from. I do think the Bible does provide guidance for moral issues. It's just not in that flat way of reading it. The same way as like you might read a uh, a book, uh, a storybook, or let's say a fable or something like that. And in the beginning, they have they have con- contradictory things. You don't know until the resolution of the story where the the author, what the author's really trying to get at, right? Um, so I think you have to read the Bible as a whole in order to understand what God's really trying to get at. And from that, we can see how do we get direction in our lives i do think like i said before i do think oh the bible says certain things are sin certain things are are wrong but i don't and i think the bible does give moral guidance but that's not the primary purpose of the bible the primary purpose is not to talk about those things the primary purpose is to talk about this guy named jesus right the primary purpose is to talk about how god is really faithful towards his people and I think specifically with the laws, you can see Jesus himself didn't really get too much involved in those things. I know a lot of Christians say, oh, yeah, Jesus was political. And, yeah, he was. He was very political, but he was political in a different way. He does. I think he wants to defeat sin. Jesus has come, came to defeat sin, but he didn't do it by passing laws. So I think we as Christians need to, like, tone that entire side down. It's not going to be about we're not going to pass a whole entire Christian agenda and change the world by passing, getting all of our Supreme Court justices uh, elected, getting all these. You know, that's not how it is it's going to work. The way it's going to work is by changing culture through the story, through the narratives, through those type of things. The same way as like, hey, World War Two happened, World War One happened. Uh, what is the narrative around those things? Right. Though that the narratives is what's going to change the world to be a better place, to be a more morally, whatever, like to just come full circle, to go towards the moral goal that both Darren and I agree on, right? It's going to be those cultural things. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to change that culture through that way. So I think the laws, uh, to be honest, yeah, maybe you can you can vote one way or another. doesn't really make a difference in the long run. Laws are going to come back and forth, and and eventually laws are going to reflect the culture. So what you really want to do is get at the culture. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, I want to ask a slightly more challenging question uh, of you then. And again, not this isn't there is no trap coming after this. It's it's just trying to trying to uh, push and try to to understand. Sure. Um, let's imagine that the time a Christian coming to you for guidance on this very same subject. And yeah. I know there's this law coming where uh, the parliament in my country is trying to pass a law to, to allow same-sex marriage. But me as an individual, I fundamentally 
disagree with that and I and I don't want it to happen but at the same time I'm also worried about the impact that that might have on on the church and the, the people I meet in society you know I, I, I meet people and, and I work with people who will be negatively affected by this and in some way this touches back to what Darren was saying earlier about uh, about human flourishing and Darren I'm going to come to you with a question on that in a minute um so I'm I'm this Christian who fundamentally disagrees with uh, same-sex marriage, but I do recognise that there is a negative effect of that in in some parts of uh, of society around me. But I feel that if I have that having the opportunity to vote for that legislation, I've got a choice of voting for people that I know that will, will help them emotionally, or voting with what I firmly believe is the right moral action to do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which way would you guide me to go on that? To be honest, as a pastor, I don't think that I would have the expertise to guide for that particular uh, policy decision. Because I I think I consider these laws to be policy. And I think it's a mistake to map morality and especially biblical morality directly onto policy because there's a lot of unintended consequences. There's a lot of nuances that I don't understand as a pastor, right? So, for example, if someone wanting to vote their conscience says, okay, I don't agree with homosexuality or whatever, but I think that like not affirming gay marriage is so damaging to people that I think I want to vote for it just so that people can feel affirmed, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. Right. That's their decision. I would not advise either way as a pastor uh, um, because I don't I, again, I don't advise on policy, but I, th- I would be I, I would say that those options are all available to that person. Thank, thanks, uh, Daniel. That, that's honest of you. So so Darren, so the question on uh, the homosexuality issue and, and the, the same sex marriage thing. How does allowing people of the same gender actually help with human flourishing in the way that you are defining it in the moral status at the beginning of this show? Well, I don't think the um, legalization of homosexuality is a human human flourishing question. Um, I think it's a question about fairness and empathy. Um, so let's say that you have a sexual proliferation uh, trait that uh, the majority of people don't agree with, let's say furry, for example. And um, do you really want to be in a country where people are going to prevent you from being married because you're a a furry or a Christian or whatever, um, just because they don't agree with that? And I think that really drives home the um the fairness of it i mean why why does homo why is homosexuality even on the christian radar except their book says that it's an abomination um and it's one of those things that if they were um asked the question should they be restricted by law to prevent them from being married just because they're christian um, because someone else's holy book says that Christians are an abomination, they would immediately see the unfairness of that act. And so I think that when you're asking these types of questions, is it's 
are we really a nation that wants to persecute and legislate another part of our people into as a second class citizen? And would you feel comfortable if the, the majority was coming after you rather than you being part of the majority going after these marginalized communities? Uh, okay, thank you, uh, uh, Darren. It's trouble. <laughs> My brain is not coping well with all these D's on the call. I have to confess because you've got David on silence in the background as well. <laughs> and I've got all these names with D in the list in front of me. And I have to think which one I have to say. I'm clearly too old for this game. Um, <laughs> so I've, one more question. Uh, and again, it's back to you, uh, Daniel. I'm sorry. Uh, on the um, uh, on the, the same sex uh, subject. Um, and one of the objections that I've heard on uh, when aimed back at Christians, when Christians have said they, they don't want uh, to to be in a country where, where same sex uh, is supported. One of the, uh, the pushbacks I've heard non-Christians say to them is, if you want to have that rule for the people in your church, that's fine. But it's not moral for you to push that rule onto other people who don't share your God. Mm, okay. Is Do you see that as a as a justifiable response to some of the things that, that Christians see as ethical? Because that goes beyond just homosexuality. There could possibly be other yeah. examples that we come up to which which Christians would abide to. Sex before marriage is probably uh, another classic one of those. Is it yeah. acceptable for people who are non-Christians to say to Christians, by all means, have that rule to yourselves, but how? But don't you dare try to force the rest of the country to follow your rules? I'd be sympathetic to that argument, to be honest with you. Um, I'm again, I'm not. A, I think policy and laws and those type of things generally require a lot of research and to understand the ramifications of all the different things. So I'm not going to like blanket say certain things, but in general, I think it is appropriate to legislate morality, but I do think it's inappropriate to impose. I do. I am sympathetic to the argument that it's inappropriate to impose morality on somebody else that doesn't agree. So for example, if we all agree that murder is wrong, I think it's okay to impose that morality on everyone because we all agree on it, right? Um, but I, I mean, it, I think it, it there, you get to some nuances there because what if one person out of a billion doesn't agree with with mm -hmm. mur or thinks that murder is good or whatever? You know, so there's some nuances there. But I I generally be sympathetic to the argument that hey, we shouldn't impose our morality on other people, especially through laws, um, because I don't I don't see Jesus he didn't do that. He just he didn't he he didn't impose he didn't try to use force to impose any morality at all right and in fact he used the opposite of force which is he he allowed himself to be forced into something into death right so um I so because of that I think I yeah I, I mean I I'd have to think about it a little bit more probably but I am sympathetic to that argument okay thank you Darren did you, was there anything you wanted to say on that. Oh, I'm firmly in the camp of, um, yeah, don't force me to follow your religion. I don't even like your religion, so don't make me, don't force me to follow it. Okay. Um, thank you, guys. I think we've probably 
beaten the horse of uh, morality enough for this evening. If you guys both got got capacity, I'd like to push it on to another subject. Do either of you have a subject you'd like to go? Otherwise, I'll pick one and run with it and see where I get. I'm good to follow wherever you lead. Go for it, yeah. Um, okay. Um, I, w- I was actually going to go to science, but I, that's possibly too too broad. But what? Um, and again, we'll probably end up with the same place of literalism versus not literalism. And I think I know we know quite clearly where Daniel's position is uh, on that already. Um, I think where I'd like to go is to some of the stories in the Bible about whether or not we can believe them or not and I'm trying to come up with one in the New Testament but I'm struggling with so I'm going to stick with with Old Testament where we've got uh, quite uh, pivotable moments in in the Old Testament things like the the Battle of Jericho is possibly uh, a good one uh, or the entrance into the the promised land by with with Joshua and uh, those people uh, some of those key moments of the in the Bible, which are quite pivotal, pivotal, pivotal moments in, um, have fun editing that, David, uh, quite pivotal moments in the narrative of the Bible and, you know, if, and quite key moments, certainly in the story of Israel leading up to the Jews in the nation of Israel. And if some of those key moments, we, we've got sufficient doubt that they're actually real and that they're probably just written narratives you know in sort of like pseudo history do the exposure of those stories as potential myth or or even in some cases complete fabrication does that change the reliability with which we can view some of the bible narrative i'm guessing that question's for me <laughs> yes sorry daniel i wasn't clear enough there yeah um I would say you have to look at the specific genre of that those um, particular books, and we're looking at like Judges and Joshua, right? Yes, and, I was trying to look for something further on in the Bible, but unfortunately, I landed up too near the beginning. I was trying to go for somewhere later, uh, but yes, that's where we are. Yeah, so I think you have to put those in the context of like other, just the, you can tell the the type of historical development that some of those texts go on, are undergoing, and um, some of the texts specifically like Joshua and Judge, they're they're they are trying to root Israel's history in actual events. They are trying to do that, so they are not trying to they're not trying to make things up whole cloth. Right. But at the same time, the you can tell is a lot of it is probably like memory recall, like based on certain and, and they may get a lot of things incorrect. Right. They may fill in a lot of gaps, and those type of things. Um, and so and I think that that's actually quite common in terms of like some of the those uh, pre-Greek historians are like that or quote-unquote historians proto-history is what some some people call it right and some people do definitely push it into myth category but ultimately what's the purpose of that those um those narratives those narratives are trying to say look at God he works in actual events to be faithful to his people did those actual events happen? 
maybe we can say they don't. And I do think if they completely did not happen and you, you whatever that that kind of does challenge actually the veracity or like the the ultimate truth of the Bible right there. But I think if you could say, hey, there is some root in there of where, hey, maybe maybe they didn't take over Jericho, but they took over another city or, you know, different things like that. Or there was some sort of um, it, it, it depends on how general you want to get. But I think if you can argue that, hey, God actually did in actual events take care of his people, then the, the main point of those narratives still ring true. And those, and that's what the point of those books are. The books are arguing for the faithfulness of God, that God took care of his people. If that ultimate truth, did God take care of his people in history? If that, you can prove that that part is incorrect, then yeah, it's completely undermined. But if that part still rings, is there's still some historical basis for it? Then I think you can, you can say that that the ultimate truth of that book is still there. Um, yeah, okay, Darren, any thoughts? I, I know you're quite scathing of the Old Testament anyway, so perhaps I well, picked the wrong example. Well, it's one of those things that Christians are trying to say that there's some sort of truth in the Bible, but they don't really agree on what it is. Um, if you go back and actually look at the stories, Genesis, creation of the world, uh, the flood, um, Babylon, uh, the big tower, I think that's Babylon, Tower of Babel. Babel, Babel, that's right. Babel, yeah. Um, the way that it says that uh, g- uh, genetics is, uh, 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 you know, just the way that the Bible says that genetics happens, uh, anything that you look that can be verified in the Bible is shown to be just factually false. Um, it is not how reality – we've found that reality actually did things. Um, and so if it can't be trusted in the places where it can be tested, then I see no reason to trust it in the places it can't be tested. Daniel, Jeff thought so. Yeah, Daniel, Jeff thoughts on on that last sentence. Sure, sure, sure. I we can get. I think we're gonna kind of head back into the same discussion we were in before, unfortunately. But I'll try I to think, avoid it if it looks like it's going that way. <laughs> oh, you want me to avoid that? Okay. Hmm. No, no. I said I'll, <laughs> no. I said I'll jump in if it if it looks like it's going that way. Okay. Well, because I think that we again we have. I would characterize that as hey, you have to be able to test X, Y, Z to be able to verify certain truths or not. That is a certain concept of truth. And I think I talked about this last time on your other podcast, but I don't, the most, the things that mean the most to you, to a person, to human beings, are not like that. They're not like that at all. Like, what's the most important truth that I could tell someone? The most important truth that I could tell you is you are valued infinitely you are loved infinitely that is what i feel like is the most valuable truth i could ever tell someone it doesn't have any factual like where was the factual basis in that? is that any have anything to do with fact no i don't think so but it has to do with that is the ultimate truth how does someone be, be happy how is someone happy how does someone find happiness value love those are 
ultimate truths. And I think human beings as a whole, we value those things far above did did this XX event happen. Those things are not obviously the events can tie into those things can tie into those ultimate truths but they are not ultimate truth in and of themselves so i think yeah, we see, the Bible is talking about the ultimate truth not factuals factual truth yeah see and i i think that if it's not true factually then it's just not true by definition and i value true things rather than comforting lies See, and so I would argue again that like this comes back to how do we see reality? How do we know what is real? And I think by figuring out what is actually true. Uh, well, I think for human beings, that's very difficult. That's very uh, difficult. Science, science has done a pretty good job of it. After all, we were talking. You're what in California? So we're talking a thousand miles away, almost instantly, using factual truths that science has learned about reality. Sure. But people are killing themselves every day. People are depressed. People are unhappy. People, they have broken relationships with their, their family, with their parents, with their kids. Yeah, and science has happy, gone right away in fixing a lot of that as well. Has it? Yeah, I mean, that's what psychology does. That's why therapists exist. I, I, you know, the psychology stuff is really good, actually. I do think that there are some truths that you can find in, in psychology that are rooted in certain factual things. But I don't think that ultimately they get you all the way there. And a, the direction that – but they do point you in a direction. And I think the direction they point you in, <laughs> a lot of that stuff is I, – I hate to say this. It's been in the Bible for 2,000 years. They point you, oh, in order to be happy, you need to be grateful, right? You need to have gratitude. Well, grateful to what? What factual truth is in that? All it is is the functional truth that you need to be grat you need gratitude. And so ultimately, a lot of these things come down to, especially if you want to look at through a scientific lens, it's functional. What, if, from an evolutionary standpoint, what? How do we determine what's reality? How do our eyes know like which wavelengths of light to to register in our brain and which wavelengths of light it cannot sense? What just your sound, your hearing, sign of stuff, hearing, your sense of touch. We can't touch so many different things that actually exist in the universe. What determines what we can actually sense with our reality is what actually makes us survive, right? From an evolutionary standpoint, it's actually a functional truth. So ultimately, even at the bottom of what science is, it's functional. So when we look at truth, we can't look, just look at it, oh, is this reality or not? That doesn't actually make sense with our evolution. We Do you have actually to have a oh. definition of truth that you use? Because I don't think you're using um, truth in any sort of way that normal people use it. Truth is usually the map, uh, try to get the map as closely resembling real, uh, the territory as possible. What are you using as truth? What is your definition? There's correspondence theory and there's um, there's correspondence, correspondence to reality, but there's also coherence, right? So both of those matter in terms of figuring out where what's the functional truth that you want to base your life on. I don't think you can go with one over the other, to be honest with you. Well, you can. I do. Yeah, you do, but I don't. I, I mean, this is 
I don't want to get into that because that's like a huge philosophical debate that's been going on for hundreds of thousands of years, and they haven't really resolved. Right. They, well, you're using the word truth as if it has a definite meaning, and you seem to think that a comforting lie is truth. So I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I, I am arguing that truth, truth is a lot more subjective than you think. So I'm not trying to pinpoint an objective definition of truth. You, you're right about that. Right. But what I'm saying is from a practical standpoint, looking at how people actually live their lives, what the, is truth? How do people actually operate? You can argue, oh, truth is the correspondence to reality, blah, blah, blah. But do people actually live their lives that way? They do if they don't want to walk out in the middle of, in front of a bus. That's functional, isn't it? That's mapping the uh, reality to or map uh, making your map uh, map to the re uh, reality. Yeah, I mean that's to a functional reality, right? Well, yeah. I mean, if if someone's gonna if someone tells you that uh, you're gonna uh, win a million dollars next week, and uh, I mean you may. Uh, find comfort in that lie, and you may go ahead and uh, spend all your money because, hey, you're getting a million dollars in a week. But that doesn't actually make it true. Well, um, if you spend all your million dollars and then it doesn't come true, then that's functionally a lie, right? That's not the truth because it's a functional lie, right? We're talking about right. functional truths, the things that actually do long-term, deep down benefit you. I think we all operate on functional truth, ultimately. I don't think that's true. Okay, I'm going to jump in then with another question. I'm going to rewind back to to Jericho. Sorry, thanks for that, guys. I wasn't trying to flatten what's just been said, uh, but I'm just going to rewind to Jericho and ask uh, the opposite question of what I asked earlier. Let's say, and let's ignore how it's happened. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that we find enough evidence to be sure that the biblical story of the Battle of Jericho is true as far as we can tell. How would that change either of the way you two view the Bible? Feel free, either of you, to go first. What's the Jericho uh, story again? The Jericho story is when the army of uh, under Joshua march around the city walls seven times and then blow their trumpets and the walls magically fell down and then the army went in and killed everybody okay and what is the methodology we would be using to figure out if that was true or not i, I just ignore that because as soon as we start going into that i know you're going to science me out and it will we'll be back to it never happened so let's just assume that, that we can confirm that it it is true would okay. that change any no. way in which you view the bible are we confirming that it happened or are we confirming that it happened the way the bible says it did uh, yes, the second God one, we're, caused it. Yes, we're well. We're we're confirming that as best as possible the narrative is is true, and so the the it brings into new light the the question of is there a God? Because okay, so I know you're leaping to now. Let's prove God. That, that bit's not yet decided, but the the Jericho story is as best as we can tell happened as the Bible tells it. So, okay, so the question is, if we can uh, verify that an army walked around a uh, city walls three times, blew a horn, and the walls fell down, does that ve verify the supernatural claims of the Bible? Well, no, I'm asking, okay, no, does that change how you view the Bible? Oh, not really. 
there are things that happen in the Bible that um, aren't miraculous um, that uh, we can verify actually happened. Like I think one of the um, lists that I saw, you know, the wells were deep. The Bible says the wells were deep. So, you know, we can go in and uh, verify that. But that doesn't have any – that doesn't change how I view the supernatural parts of the the Bible. Okay. It wouldn't cause you to read some of the other stories and think maybe these happened too or you might – or wouldn't cause you to think, okay, maybe there is some credit to it after all and you might read the New Testament slightly differently to see if there's anything else you can align with? Um, no. What would have to happen for that to happen is someone would actually have to demonstrate that the supernatural is a real thing. Yeah, okay. And that it works the way people are claiming it does. Because if without the supernatural, then yes, you get an interesting story. And if it actually happened by people um, walking around and blowing their horns, well, maybe there were also people digging underneath the walls at the same time. And they fired the supports right as the horns were blowing, and that's why the walls, you know, collapsed. Okay. Okay. So the so showing the Jericho story to be true would have to go one step further, and there'd need to be something which ruled out all of those other natural options, leaving really only there is really very good positive evidence for the supernatural. Not really, because you don't verify. You don't. Um, that's not how you ver- uh, demonstrate the supernatural. That's just how you verify that you can't think of any other way it could happen. Yeah. Got you. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, we're, we're on the same page there. I just wanted to see how far I could push you on that one. Um, Daniel, same question to you, you know, because we talked about pretty much accepting that some of these Old Testament narratives aren't quite as accurate as they might mm-hmm. be if you read the Bible literally, but that doesn't really change the arcing story. If we were to find that Jericho and possibly maybe some of these other Old Testament stories are actually more accurate than we take them for in our modern world. Would that change how you view the Old Testament and maybe even read the New Testament? Um, I don't think it would change the overarching story because, again, I'm looking at how are the these events um, interpreted by the author. And I think that that's the most important part of this the the event or the 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 book is like okay this event occurred and they interpreted it as god's supernatural intervention right so i think that that interpretation is probably the heart and the meat of what that book is trying to say um if we look at like i think the most recent thing that i've looked at is that okay the walls in jericho were destroyed um, at certain time period, but it does not coincide with the period where the Israelites were supposedly coming into the promised land. So um, they're probably thought, like many years prior and they're like, oh, maybe someone looked at that and just said, oh, we must have done that hundreds of years ago. And they misremembered or they that's the, that's the most recent, um, I think, scholarship that I remember reading. So if it turns out, actually, no, they 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 did, in fact, it, somehow the timing lined up or maybe the, the, the archaeology is a little bit off or something like that. Or then I think that that I mean, that provides. Oh, yeah, then that is the actual event that God did it. I, that doesn't if it didn't happen that way. I do think that there was some event that they were trying to describe that has has to do with it. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to try to speculate or try to make up something to harmonize the Bible. But um, uh, but 
the overall point wouldn't change, which is that God is working through these events to for the the good of his people. Okay, thank thank you both for for answering that and for just uh, tolerating my inane questions. I'd like no, to just good. I'd just like to go one way because I'm just looking at the time. I'll hopefully this will be quick, but I'd like to jump right to the end of the Bible then and let's uh, talk a little bit about Revelation. And again, Daniel, you may want to correct me if my, I'm getting my facts a little bit wrong here, but my understanding is that certainly the majority of the book of Revelation is written uh, by John when he's in uh, prison on on the island of is it Patmos or something like that. Um. So, how are we to view these books? Because we do know that there are certainly some Christians who who try to put some kind of uh, prophetic interpretations on them uh, about uh, end times prophecies and, and things like that. Is is that a reasonable way to read the revelations or should they be read in a slightly different way? Um, I think, you know, I'm going to say this should be read a slightly different way. Um, I follow the scholar uh, Richard Balkum and how he reads it. So I'm not an expert again. So I I have to follow scholarship. Right. So I'm not a scholar myself. I'm not doing the <laughs> direct original research, but uh, Richard Bauckham, basically his take on it is that Revelation is is apocalyptic literature that is describing um, it's it's describing the current situation that those believers were in and that they all believed in a, an, an apocalyptic ending to this story and that Jesus was going to return and all that. And so a lot of what's actually being described is the Roman empire of that time. And so a lot of these different events are symbolic language for what actually happened in, in the Roman empire around the time either. I mean, you can say, argue it could happen a little bit after John wrote it, if you want him to be prophetic, or if some scholars will say it happened actually before you know, or during that time, and he knew that it was going to happen, or you can read the writing on the wall, those type of things. But in any case, it's very symbolic, so it's very difficult to pinpoint specific events to um, to what John is describing there. And generally, it's it, it, the, the main point, again, is that Jesus wins in the end. Jesus wins. He comes back. He conquers. He's the king. And that is the, that is the main theme of the entire Bible, that God is going to rule on earth. And and it's not about, oh, God's going to punish people and send people to hell. That's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not, hey, this is, believe this in X, Y, Z, and you get it to heaven. No, the point of the Bible is God is going to come back, intervene in this world, and defeat evil ultimately. And that's what he does in Revelation. And I think that's kind of – that's basically how we should read it. I'm going to just jump on before I go to, to Darren. Just jump on your use of the word uh, evil on, on that point. Is this um, – this is – at risk of jumping back into morality again so what would evil be defined as in the revelation context so yeah this is again this i think is different than the modern western concept of evil so i think this is very actually pretty important because it'll speak into the the homosexuality um, conversation evil is not just your individual personal ethics evil is much bigger and wider than that and I think we can see this actually in our, our world today, like with systemic racism. It's it's systemic. It's not necessarily that a specific person is 
necessarily harboring a lot of racist feelings towards another person not always at least right but because of the systems and because there's a wide there's something wider out there right and so that's what the bible is describing as evil there is a spiritual element of evil that's out there it's not just in our own personal actions this evil does infiltrate personal actions does like you know does get into you and you do evil you do sin but it's more than just individual action so in in the bible these this force or whatever is is personified often as satan is personified different things like that and um i do think i do believe that there are it is it is personal but this is largely faith based i i I understand people don't think that that is not a personal being or whatever but there and satan himself i don't think is equated to to evil or equated to sin but there are forces of evil out there that are sometimes personified right and so jesus is coming not just to say hey stop doing what what's wrong he's saying you are trapped by these evil forces that are outside of you that are causing you to do sin yes you have personal responsibility you need to stop doing sin too but it's not just that you are also trapped by these other forces and you have no ability actually to not sin unless i defeat it and that's what he did on the cross he defeated sin so that we could have the ability to make our choices so that we can and it's a it's not just a one-time thing we have to continually defeat sin but he did the first and strongest blow to sin strongest blow to evil on the cross but it's ultimately not yet defeated until he comes back the second time that's what revelation is talking about okay so you have to forgive me down because i'm really quite fascinated by what uh, daniel's saying here um uh, daniel you also mentioned evil personified or something like that uh, just now do you mean it's personified in the narrative as part of the narrative stream or do you mean in terms of uh, future prophecy that there will actually be a person personifying evil like uh, the antichrist that many christians expect um i think i i think that it's difficult i don't want to speak specifically to revelation because it's very symbolic i'm not uh, scholar in that area so I'd, I'd have to read a lot a lot more and even they i think do disagree and daryl say see this is why you can't trust the bible <laughs> but um putting that aside there i can't speak is, is the antichrist some f- personal figure that's going to come forward i i don't think from my interpretation or again i follow richard bacham he would personify like nero i think or one of the roman empires as the antichrist okay so i don't think that that is a specific figure that we're looking forward to um i know other christian denominations might read it differently right but i do think for satan is not necessarily the same person as the antichrist and there is some like satan or the enemy or the evil one that is a pretty consistent theme throughout not only the new testament but the old testament um is he the serpent in genesis 1 or, or genesis 2 um i don't know but it, it, it's definitely there so there are some like god as a personal force of good there's also a, a counterpart to him that's characterized bible as much weaker but still something something that god has to contend with so i don't know if that answers your question 
Good enough, I, I think, uh, Daniel. So, Daniel, I, you have to forgive me. I genuinely don't know what your knowledge of uh, Revelation is or, or how you feel on that. Is this? Uh, do you have any thoughts on it? Um, a couple. Um, it's been a long time since I've actually read Revelations, but I seem to remember like swords coming out of mouths and dragons and that kind of thing. Um, but um, what I would say is that really if God wanted to win against evil forces, then he probably shouldn't have created them in the first place. That seems like the easiest way to win against them. Uh, secondly, I would say that um, Revelation always strikes me as one of those things where a hallucinations hallucinogens was involved with. Uh, anthropologists have um, found temples with actual hallucinogens in the candles, the smoke, uh, in the temples, including Christian temples um, that they found. So I think Revelations is one of those things that's clearly the result of someone taking those hallucinogens a little too seriously. Do you have a thought on that, Daniel? On hallucinogens? Yeah. Um, no, I don't have any, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any response <laughs> to that. <laughs> um, okay, I, I think this is pretty much us coming up to a close, but I've got one cheeky question just to ask because I'm like that. I'm British, so you're going to have to love me and forgive me. Um, so just for one final thing before uh, uh, David comes on to close us out, if he wants to do that. Um, the uh, Paul's Damascus Road experience, uh, as we're talking about hallucinogenic, I can't even say it now, damn you, Darren. Paul's Damascus Road experience, real or written after the fact to explain a change? I would take it as real. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that the specific genre, like acts, um, is trying to be as historical as it can be, uh, given the, the its ancient circumstances and like their standards. It's not it's not uh it's not up to our historical standards. Obviously, it's not up to modern historical standards. But given those um um given those those parameters, I think it's trying to be historical. I wouldn't say literal like. I don't. I don't think the word literal describes everything in there, but his some type of historical. I think that the way they we uh, use the word literal is is a little bit different than the way that they would describe as historical. So they're just trying to talk about events generally. Um, they're and it's very experience driven those type of things. So they they're not going to try to be as objective as modern. Um, um modern westerners are trying to be so because of but within that context i think you can say he had uh, an experience it that that really changed his life like um did light actually shine out i, I don't, it could just be in his mind the light but if you want to say that's not literal then fine it's not literal but i think that he saw something like light shining out you know yeah and i can definitely uh, understand why skeptics don't accept acts as history as it's not it doesn't meet um the modern historical standards um so i can completely understand that that's so that's not what um i would say I, again so if you if you want to look at it through a modern lens we have to look at acts 
from a modern person it, yeah it is more on a literary end and maybe so that means less literal but i think for a, an ancient person it that's pretty much as historical as you possibly get uh maybe not uh, maybe i'm ex- saying a little bit too much but it's pretty historical let's just say for an ancient person so final thoughts darren um Paul's sort of an interesting case. Um, the interesting thing about that is that Paul never describes the details of the um, Damascus Road experience. All of that is attributed to him later by other authors. And um, I think it's um, one of those things, uh, just a clear example of mythologizing, um, where you take one act and then someone else wants to spruce it up a little bit to give it a little more emotional emotional oomph and so they just start adding on to it until you know you've got jesus appearing to them and blinding and all that good stuff okay thank you both i could probably go on with this conversation for ages but you know time needs to stop i need to go to bed because i've got work tomorrow so david you've been quietly listening to this do you want to have an opportunity to jump on and say a few words to ride us out or are you good for me to close up nope he he doesn't you've that's either a really good thing and that he's really chuffed and can't wait to get this uploaded or he's crying and he doesn't want to talk through his tears um either way it's a novel experience that david doesn't want the last word so thank you both Thank you, David, for giving me this opportunity. Just one final note from me. I go away for a long weekend tomorrow, so I probably will not see this uh, appear on the Skeptics and Seekers board until Tuesday next week. This radio silence to me for the whole of the weekend. Enjoy it. Enjoy not having to interact with me. I'm sure all of you will love that as a little bonus and as a teaser for that. I'm hoping to meet over the weekend Dr. Clint Haycock uh, from the Mindshift podcast. I hope that uh, some of you guys listen to him. So I'm looking forward to meeting up with him. Maybe we're going to record something together. That'll be a teaser for another time. There are other things in the work. Uh, Darren, you and I are trying to sort out next one in our um, alpha series of episodes for Still Unbelievable. We're still tying down that. There are an other couple of few things going on. I don't know if there's any skeptics and seekers announcements that I need to do. So with that, I just want to say thank you again to the both of you. Daniel, sorry, oh, uh, Daniel, we hopefully you'll be back again. We'll see if we can get you back onto. <clears throat> still unbelievable for another chat to tease things out i am absolutely certain that david is once again to have you back on to skeptics and seekers to talk something through so hopefully the this uh, the subjects that we've been on will give david some kind of idea of what he wants to talk to you about and also there is going to be an all christian show in the morality series so i don't know if uh, david's spoken to you about that daniel but you being a Christian, maybe you're a candidate for that. Uh, right. But there will be an, an all-Christian show on morality. So the likes of Darren and myself will quite obviously be barred from, from that show. That will obviously be an interesting one to listen to. Um, and I think that's it. Enjoy listening to this episode. Until next time I'm, on, I'm online, good night.